everybody, this is Unit 4 back again with another episode of The Potent Podcast. This is our third episode, and we're going to be talking all about the judicial branch. Um, and we're going to start this episode off by talking about the basics of the judicial branch, which comes from the Constitution. So, Matt, go ahead. Hello, guys. Matt here, back again. So, talking about the Constitution and the judiciary branch. So, we know that Article 1 is Congress. Article 2 is the executive branch. And Article 3 is all about the judiciary. So the judiciary um, outlined in Article 3 is actually very vague. So Section 1, of course, is the vesting clause, which vests the judicial power of the United States in the federal court. And it sort of outlines how there is a Supreme Court, which is the sort of the, um, the high law of the land, which has the total jurisdiction over the rulings of any sort of dispute and is the main arbitrating power in terms of the laws. And also within Article 3 is sort of outlined how they can, Congress can actually establish inferior courts. So we see this today with appellate jurisdictions and district courts. So another thing I thought we should touch on was how Article 3 is really vague. So we see uh, in Congress, specifically in Article 1, how there can be two senators Um, In terms of the judiciary, for justices, while we all may think that nine sort of is laid out in the Constitution, and it's actually, there isn't actually a set number of justices that is allowed for to actually be on the Supreme Court. This was actually decided by the Judiciary Act of 1869, which uh, sort of laid out one chief justice and eight associate justices. And we've sort of seen how actually this number has fluctuated over time with the addition of uh, Supreme Court justices um, and also the um, adding away and t- taking back of Supreme Court justices. And we've seen today even sort of the threat of court packing where sort of a Congress can sort of influence the judiciary branch by passing legislation to increase the number of members on the Supreme Court. So I think now I'm going to hand it over to um, Mark to talk about the Supreme Court and the justices and their role within the judiciary. Like Matt was saying, our court has nine justices, but there's currently um, a lot of discussion regarding um, like the expansion of the court um, because you know um, a lot of people on the Democratic side might feel that um, due to all of, due to Trump's like amount of picks, the court is now like super balanced towards the conservative side. So there's obviously a push to expand the court, but um, I am actually going to talk about how this appointing process really works so basically what happens um if you saw west wing note there's an extensive vetting process whenever a president picks a supreme court nominee so that's how it really starts the president has to pick a a nominee for the supreme court once the justice either passes away or um or doesn't um or chooses to retire and there's a vacancy on the court so basically what happens after the president appoints is that the Senate has to um, approve of a Supreme Court nominee and they need a 50 plus one um, vote to approve a court nominee. It used to be um, 60 due to like the filibuster. They need 60 to vote cloture on a vote for the Supreme Court, but that was gotten rid of in 2013. So now they just need a simple majority in order to approve the appointment of a Supreme Court justice. So basically the appointment of justices 
is kind of built to have like a check and balance, right? Because you have the president and the Senate both consulting in regards to appointing justices. And this also goes to, for the rest of the federal courts, like the district courts and the um, appellate courts and the circuit courts. Um, they're not, the, the judicial nominees are picked by the president and selected by the Senate. They're confirmed by the Senate and they get a life term. So something that Matt touched on earlier that I kind of want to build off on is the fact that the Supreme Court or the judicial branch, let me rephrase that, the judicial branch isn't technically, I would say, just the Supreme Court. It also includes all the lower courts that are within the Supreme Court, um, and these courts that Congress has made. The very, very top is the Supreme Court. Under that, there are circuit courts, and under that, there are district courts. So in total, there are 94 district courts in the United States, and then there are 13 circuit courts. So just like imagine like the United States divided into 13 like parts, and then some of them include like multiple states. I believe the circuit that California's in includes California, Oregon, uh, maybe Arizona. I'm not exactly sure, but it includes Washington. Washington as well. Oh yeah, that's true. Forgot about Washington there. Um, but then at the very very top, Supreme Court just by itself. So. It allows for an appeal system where basically if there is a lawsuit, there is a case, usually starts at the very lowest court, which is the district court, there'll be a decision. And if either the plaintiff or the def- uh, defendant or whatever, they're like, I don't like this decision, they can make an appeal. So that means it'll go up to a higher court and the higher court will hear it and then make another decision. Let's say at that one, um, either the plaintiff or the defendant says, you know what, I don't like that decision. Then it'll reach the Supreme Court. Um, and then the Supreme Court will make a decision on it. And then that usually allows for whatever decision to be applied across the nation because, you know, the Supreme Court is the, um, decides the, like, the supreme law of the land. That's so a pretty cool system. Um, it allows for, kind of, you see, like, federalism playing in it, where, like, really small cases, like, parking tickets and running red lights, um, and I would say smaller cases are dealt with at you know, the lower courts, but then more serious cases like Roe v. Wade, 1973, Brown v. Board, like big, big cases that have big effects, um, they're going to be decided at the national level. Super fun. Okay, so to touch more upon uh, what Grace is talking about, the appellates and sort of these original uh, jurisdictions and such, I think it's important to talk about how the Supreme Court only takes around, I believe it's... Um, 100 to 150 of these sort of appeal cases out of over 7,000 cases. So you may think, oh yeah, the Supreme Court's the big wig, it has all the power. But these appeal case, appellate courts decide most of these issues and they have a large degree of influence. So to, to actually take on these cases, it's there's something called the rule of four, which essentially states how to for the justice to actually agree to even hear a case for justices must agree to do so so this was this is different sort of or you may be wondering why the majority so this sort of plays into the 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 democratic ideal that the minority should have a voice no matter what so and i think that the rule of four really just represents this um we can also look sort of to the founders viewpoints on sort of the makeup of the court and sort of why things so why a lot of these processes today are in place. So I'm going to hand it over to Isha to talk about the main Federalist paper regarding um, the Judiciary uh, Federalist 78. 
Okay, so Federalist 78 is one of the most important Federalist papers that talk about the judicial branch. Um, and it's written by Hamilton. And basically, the most important thing that they say in this paper is the process of judicial review. So judicial review is basically the power of a court to declare something um, like a piece of legislation or like an action as unconstitutional, which is pretty huge. It's a big power. And in the Federalist paper, one of the concerns that came out of this power of judicial review was that the judicial branch would be way too powerful. But um, Hamilton uh, takes away the, these concerns by saying that the judicial branch is not going to be too powerful because they can't do anything but judge. Like they can't enforce their decisions, they can't seek out cases, they can't actually create legislation, they can only judge. So Hamilton argues that the judicial branch would actually be the weakest branch, um, but still one of the most important in keeping the other two branches in check. So that was the gist of Federalist 78, and that's an important one to think about when um, you're talking about the judicial branch. So uh, that's kind of it for the basics of the judicial branch. And now we're going to get into more of um, the Supreme Court cases that kind of shaped the way that the branch acts today. And one of those is Marbury v. Madison, which uh, Matt is going to talk about. So Marbury v. Madison is sort of like it's I would argue it's one of the most important cases in American history. So this court case um, was decided in 1803. And it was sort of this, um, it was a landmark case because it essentially gave Supreme, the Supreme Court um, the power to actually declare whether or not a rule was unconstitutional. And the rule in question was actually the Judiciary Act of 1789, I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, they actually struck down their own law, which would increase their own power. But in doing so, they gave themselves this ability to arbitrate all laws in the land. So we sort of saw the shift because before the Supreme Court was kind of kind of a joke. But now they have this power to actually sort of have a lot of influence within within um, how the laws are sort of interpreted. So this has given the courts a, a lot of power. So uh, another thing that I thought we should talk about, which is really important, are actually the standards of dis justiciability. So some of these standards include ripeness, there's mootness, there's the political question doctrine, and standing. Yes, okay. So I'm not going to go over all of these because that would honestly just be probably very boring and we don't want to waste all your time. But I will go over the political question doctrine because this is sort of um, a very controversial sort of thing that has kind of flip-flopped depending on the ideology of the court. So the political question doctrine essentially states how the court will essentially refuse to actually rule on a case if the relevant issues can be sort of dealt with by another branch of government or they're too politically charged. So we saw in the landmark case Baker v. Carr, 19 Baker v. Carr, yes. Sort of before they refused to rule on the issue at hand, which was sort of redistricting based on population um, because they thought because it's the I, redistricting is given to Congress. It's essentially enumerated within the Constitution that it's Congress's job. So they essentially said this is a or before they said it was a political question. So we're not going to rule on it. However, Baker v. Carr, they said this is not regard the political question and the fundamental right to the, the right to vote being sort of diluted by these um, sort of malignant redistricting process. 
allowed the court to intervene. So the political question doctrine is something sort of the court is kind of used to sort of back away from cases they kind of don't want to do. But they also, it's important because it essentially allows the courts to sort of not sort of, because they're undemocratic branch from deciding a lot of important issues that maybe should be dealt with Congress or the executive. I think in terms of the standards of justiciability, the interesting thing is that it's a self-made restraint. All the other branches, they have all these restraints that are talk or that are described in either the constitution and court cases and pieces of legislation. Um, but it's always like another branch is limiting the branch. So like, for example, Congress limits the president, the president limits Congress, the president limits the Supreme Court. But something that's interesting about the Supreme Court is that it has created limits for its own self, which are the standards of justiciability. If you look at the Constitution, there is no mention of these standards, and it's something that the court created for themselves. And at times, it can hold them back, which is something called judicial restraint. And on the other side of the flip would be judicial activism. When talking about the role of the judicial branch, the debate over judicial activism versus judicial restraint is probably one of the biggest of those debates. So um, judicial activism is when the court takes an active role in uh, solving problems. It could be like social, economic, or political problems. Basically just an active role and um, not exactly sticking the precedent, which is what judicial restraint is. Judicial restraint is when you base a court decision off of something maybe that has happened before. So you're not actually changing anything new. And so different people believe uh, that the court should adopt either one of these practices. Um, so let's focus on judicial activism for a second here. Uh, judicial activism, I think the biggest period of time would be during the Warren Court. Um, and that was when a lot of different cases happened. We have Baker v. Carr, which is redistricting. We have Brown v. Board, just some uh, really influential cases that have never been seen before. So. Um, these decisions show judicial activism because there was no precedent, or if there was precedent, it was overturned and changed. Um, and I think one example that we need to talk about uh, is Roe v. Wade. And this one created, um, this one talked about abortion, which is an issue that hasn't been talked about before, and declared it as a fundamental right uh, under the right to privacy, which is an example of judicial activism. Uh, yeah, is an example of judicial activism. Okay, and then judicial restraint is uh, basically any case in which the judges don't actually insert their own uh, their own outside political opinions, basically, and don't change something that has already happened. So yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't think weak is necessarily perception we have today. Um, a lot of people see the court as either way too activist or way too like um, relying on bad precedent. Um, there are there have been many occasions in the past though when the court has made like very big decisions in which people have seen the court as kind of like an empty branch so to speak in the sense that they don't have really any mechanism to enforce the rules that they're making like the legislative and executive are pretty closely intertwined in that regard but the judiciary it doesn't really have a mechanism through which to enforce the interpretation on the law so there have been certain occasions in history in which the court in which um there have been threats to just not necessarily obey the decision of the court. And I would say the most evident example that comes to mind would be Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which we brought up earlier as a case of what someone called judicial activism, um, which I would disagree with, but still. Um, basically, many states in the South really like resisted this decision for 
obvious reason the South was incredibly racist at the time, and they did not want school integration happening. However, the court ruled that segregated schools were fundamentally unequal and therefore unconstitutional. And however, these states still resisted. Um, if you got, I'm sure those listening might have heard of Little Rock Nine. If you haven't, basically, what they they were the first nine students to go to a um, go to a segregated high school in Arkansas. They, yeah, Little Rock, Arkansas, they were the first nine to go to a segregated school, but there was huge resistance from the town. There was, there, and they faced deaths of violence. They faced um, a lot of, you know, pushback. And they were not allowed basically to attend school unbothered. So, and even their governor was basically saying like, we won't have these, um, these African-American people going into our school. So they were resisting a, dis a decision by the court, even though it was specifically laid out that it was illegal to have a segregated school. So Dwight D. Eisenhower had to send the National Guard down to Arkansas to resolve that situation. Um, of course, you know, it wasn't really resolved. There was still rampant racism in the South and um, school segregation was kind of a, still a huge issue until busing came along in the early 1970s, which allowed for um, schools that were segregated in practice, in theory, to be actually um, desegregated in practice. So, so basically, yeah, the courts have, are, when they make controversial rulings, it's often hard for them to enforce them. I think we've had really great discussions regarding kind of things that exist on Supreme Court right now, um, in terms of past cases, um, the constitutionality, standards of justiciability, all that fun stuff. Um, but as Unit 4, a lot of the times we get questions from judges along the lines of like, how do we fix X, Y, Z? And a lot of the times, especially now with a 6-3 conservative majority on the court, um, in addition with President, former President Trump appointing a total of three just justices despite only serving one term and being not a very favorable president, and you know having all that authority now on the Supreme Court, like should we be looking towards reform on our Supreme Court? Um, that's a question we get all the time. And um, these are some of the proposals we always brought up um, during testimony. So the first one comes from a professor called Daniel Epps from Washington University, and he proposes the balanced bench plan. And this is kind of similar to court packing, but I think a better alternative in my opinion. Um, so a lot, as you guys know, there's a lot of concerns about packing the court, whether that's constitutional or not, um, term limits, because as you know, justices are special because they serve a life term, so they don't have like a four-year term limit or a six-year term limit or two-year term limit. They don't get reelected, things like that. Um, so the specific section of the Constitution that um, Professor Epps talks about is Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2, which basically says the president is allowed to appoint justices, which are then confirmed by the Supreme, uh, sorry, by the Senate. Um, and these justices serve on the Supreme Court. So it's this plan is similar to the balanced bench plan. It's very similar to court packing, as I said before. So what would you, uh, what would happen is the president would appoint five conservative justices and five liberal justices. And then I believe it was like two or three like moderate justices in the middle. That way there's not technically gridlock. Um, it allows for there to be um, more, I would say, um, or more decisions where we're not just relying on like having, appointing a majority, like currently what we have right now, 6-3 conservative majority. 
Um, so Asylic personally thinks it's a really cool plan. I don't know how it would play out, but I think it's definitely something that um, our federal government could look into, do some research on and see like how beneficial it would be. So yeah, that's the balance bench plan. The other plan that we looked at concerned term limits. Um, the fact that justices do serve on there for a very long time. However, kind of as we go on in history, as we go on, move on in life, things will change, but we have justices with very like set in stone ideologies. So this is the Calabresi Lindgren statuary theory proposed by Stephen, Professor Stephen Calabresi, a law professor at Northwestern. And what he says is that there are, it's, like, it's a kind of a historical cycle. So basically every 18 years, um, historical trends change, which then calls for um, new justices is what he says in his research. Um, so what he thinks is that there should be a term limit of 18 years, but it's not just like, oh, eight, every 18 years, we just like appoint new justices. What he thinks is there'll still be nine justices on the court, but instead of appointing an entire new justice, what they would do is they would take a judge from a federal court, which is also appointed by the president. So one of the lower courts and that justice, judge would then rise to the Supreme Court and serve for 18 years. Once his or her 18 years are up, they would go back to their lower court and then another lower court judge would rise. And this would be a staggered thing. So it's not just like we lose all nine justices in one year. It would be like every like one year, we'd like one new person, another year, a new person, another year, a new person. So like a rotation. And you would think like, oh, this like violates the constitution because um, article three specifies that the justices have um, life term tenures, but technically they do still have lifetime tenures because although they're no longer s serving on Supreme court, they're still serving on a lower court. So it's technically still a life term because they're not just like retiring after 18 years, they're still serving. So that is um, really interesting. Those two kind of proposals we have for ways that we could fix the Supreme Court without saying court packing, because oftentimes judges don't like when you say court packing. Um, another thing to keep in mind for um, future Comp Civics Unit for friends, um, this year with President Biden in his first term, he just reached his first 100 days in office. Um, he actually had an executive order regarding establishing, I believe, a commission or some sort of committee. It's a bipartisan committee that would then do research on reforms for the Supreme Court and the judicial branch in general. Um, so this is like kind of concerning the passing of former Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the fact that we do have a 6-3 conservative majority, which will probably stay for a very long time. Um, so yeah, it's something to look into. Um, I personally kind of have, I just like know the surface level details, but it's, I think something really interesting. I'm excited to see what this commission kind of um, is able to do in terms of research for the next few years. So yeah, that is all we got today. Super fun, super exciting judicial branch. Thank you again for listening to our potent podcast. And I think the Supreme Court is an especially fickle branch of government. Uh, especially because it's not elected. So, I mean, and these rulings have immense, 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 immense um, impacts on a lot of things for a lot of people, whether it's Citizens United or a refusal, refusal to actually arbitrate on partisan gerrymandering. We can see how the courts are really played in the role part of our lives. And I think it's important to know as much as you can about sort of these institutions of government because they really do hold so much importance over what we do and how our lives are run once again thank you for listening to our podcast good day good night good morning bye-bye thank you bye <laughs>